Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is part two of episode seven of our podcast, Things Worth Fighting For. During this slightly surreal time, we're inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. On this bumper episode of the podcast, we've been taking a close look at mental health and identity in the age of social media. If you've already listened to part one, then welcome back. Just to recap, I spoke to the brilliant writer, model and influencer Jamie Windust ahead of the release of Jamie's book, In Their Shoes, part memoir and part guidebook to navigating non-binary life in the times we're living in. I loved speaking to Jamie and hearing their story, so if you've just joined us, I'd really encourage you to check out part one of this iWay special double edition of the pod. Jamie's take on the world is equally fascinating and inspiring, and I'd argue is essential listening. Another powerful voice in the conversation around mental health, inclusivity and identity in the digital age belongs to the very special guest I'm about to speak to. Jamila Jamil first appeared on British screens in 2009 as co-presenter of the much-loved music news show Freshly Squeezed on T4. Jamila's ballsy sense of humour and knowledge of music won her many fans and in 2012 she made history by becoming the first female presenter of the official chart show on BBC Radio 1. In 2016, Jamila moved to LA with her partner, the electronic musical boy genius and producer James Blake, and discovered newfound fame on American screens as Tahani Al-Jamil in the NBC comedy series The Good Place. Around a similar time, Jamila founded the social media account iWay. Initially, Jamila used the campaign to protest against celebrity endorsements of weight loss products and diet suppressants, inviting followers to submit unedited selfies using the hashtag iWay to describe things they feel grateful for or proud of. 
iWay has since evolved into a community platform as well as a podcast, tackling a wide range of social issues from climate change to representation of marginalised groups, supporting and sharing stories by amazing people like Jamie Windus themselves. I've got to know Jamila a little bit over the years and I've always had a huge respect for her for using her platform to speak out against discrimination and to campaign for social justice. So it was a great pleasure to spend some time talking to her and hearing where her journey with activism began and also about where it's headed. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jamila Jamil and I'll meet you on the other side. First off, Jamila, I'm so happy to have you here with us on the podcast. We've known each other a few years and have got a few friends in common, haven't we? We do. Um, Amma and the Strong Asian Mothers. Indeed. Uh, yeah, we go back all the way. I used to interview you, I think, on T4 and Freshly Squeezed, and I was always a really big fan. Oh, yeah, back in, back in the good old days. Because you're in yeah. LA now. I am. I've, uh, I've become a full wanker. Um, <laughs> so... I'm living in West Hollywood uh, with my musician boyfriend. I'm an actress. I embody the cliche. <laughs> How's it been spending lockdown over there? Has, have you missed, I don't know, have you missed the folks at home or is that very much home now? No, I mean, they're both home. I've been here six years and I have had a fairly chilled lockdown. I am massively lucky in that I can afford rent and I still love my boyfriend and he still loves me. And so I think that that is immense privilege in itself because we haven't tried to kill each other, unlike many of my friends and their other halves. Um, but no, Boris has made me not miss London. Not that Trump makes me feel excited to be here, yeah. but um, Boris has really twatted it. And that has made me not want to be in London because he's just handled the whole thing so appallingly. But I do massively miss my friends and it feels crazy to not be allowed to leave America. Otherwise, I won't be allowed back in. That makes me feel extra homesick and I'm always going to be a Londoner at heart. All the people I live with are English. And so I've at least got my small slice of Britain here during lockdown. Are you someone that, do you, do you find that you need that contact? Do you, do you need to be out seeing people or can you find, no. you, you, can, you can find that sort of sense of happiness, fulfilment in yourself at home with your partner? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if I'd say happiness and fulfilment, definitely with my partner, but I'm just, I'm very socially anxious and I don't really like a lot of people. Um, so uh, just to be honest, um, <laughs> so I don't get along with or like or particularly uh, feel like I gravitate towards many other people in the world. So yeah. I, I prefer being inside. I was um, as deaf a large portion of my childhood and I was also... Uh, I also struggled with a lot of physical difficulties growing up and that meant that because I lived on the second floor of a flat in London, I didn't go out very much and I didn't have a lot of friends. And so I think that I'm actually very naturally someone who works well in a kind of solitary home environment. That's my sort of natural state. Yeah. So for me, this is kind of my Olympics and I've been training for this forever. I mean, I suppose talking about lockdown, are there any life hacks methods of self-care mindfulness which have kept you centered during the you know the past four or five months have, have, what stopped you from losing the plot hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think the overwhelming, consistent, like, drip feed of perspective of what's happening to other people right now. Honestly, it's just so hard to complain when you have a roof over your head and you have food in your belly it, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying that no one should be able to, and obviously mental illness can impact everyone, and it's definitely something that I constantly struggle with. But for me, I think it has just been really taking in what's happening in Beirut, in Poland, like all over the world, not just right around me. Mm. Um, that has been very grounding. And also, I think just allowing the mental health stuff to surface, you know, we all finally have a bit of time for you know and there's no distractions like there's nothing to blame our bad feelings on anymore because we're not getting on the tube at eight o'clock in the morning and someone's assholes in our face you know <laughs> we're not being shoved and pushed around we're yeah. just stuck in a house and there's nowhere to hide from your demons that I think that I I've had kind of a rough year emotionally because I've just but in a good way that I've allowed my demons to surface and just for me to be able to look at exactly what I haven't dealt with because I've been too busy living my life Mm, mm. And so I think that's been something I haven't been staying well. I've actually been kind of leaning into some of the sadness and the pain in order to be able to get through it. I think it was Carl Jung who said that which you need most is where you least want to look or something like that. I'm paraphrasing because I'm ignorant as shit. But I, I, lo- I, love I that. definitely resonate with that. I saw another amazing quote. Someone said, you know, in this period, we've all been living with any demons that do you know we've all got we all see and understand demons in different ways but you actually yeah. when you get to know them they can actually be quite good company <laughs> do you sort of know what i mean temporary guest a, a, yeah. a, a passing visitor um that you need in order to like help understand yourself and get closer to yourself better you know you have to understand the demon in order to be able to set it free i think and so that's definitely an element of that amongst everyone I know. We're all kind of in a state of, of trauma, but also in a state of healing, you know, and I mean trauma based on what's happening around the entire world. Like it's a kind of collective feeling of collective consciousness of, of pain. You can feel it all around you. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are black people and I've got a lot of friends who are trans people and friends who are disabled people. And these people are all being so heavily marginalized right now. And you can palpably feel that pain and it's just important to not shy away from it I think if ever there was a message of this year I mean someone on Twitter recently said that um hindsight is 2020 which is obviously a famous expression Mm. um but the way that you can flip it on the way that this year has exposed all 
of the things that the world has gotten wrong, that our society has fucked up up until now has just been extraordinary. I've never witnessed a year like it where everything has come out in the wash. Everything, everyone's racism, ableism, transphobia, everything has just been revealed. Mm. And our truest nature, our divisive fears, like the way we respond to each other, but also human kindness has reemerged yes. and human care and human empathy and the way that people are rallying around and donating and raising money and raising awareness and, and raising their own consciousness has been also a wonderful thing. So I think we're just learning a lot about humanity. This is a huge shift and we are coming out of this this situation, I think, unrecognisable comparatively to what we went into in March. Are you worried that this lesson that I complete I mean I completely agree with you there is there is a lesson here to be learned are you are you at all worried that before long all these old mechanics of um you know the multinational corporate world you know that machinery will start back up again and that we'll forget the lesson I think it will try but I think we're going to have so little money I mean we're entering a kind of global at least i mean maybe not new zealand everyone but new zealand is going to enter a global depression yeah and i think that people aren't going to have the money to empower the corporations anymore and i also think people have started to really see corporations for what they are you know we we were a world post the 2008 recession that became just materialist and capitalist beyond all belief as a kind of response to the terror of that last recession right mm. and we became obsessed with vacuous celebrity and with jewels and logos and this that and the other just like consume 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 fill the void with consumption don't fix your mental health just buy 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 online yeah. buy buy quicker get 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 it today same mm. day delivery it was it's been relentless as a way to kind of rebuild the economy we've had all of the wrong value systems and we yes. ne what we never had after the last uh recession was a pause to actually think about what the fuck is going on what is go what is happening and i think because we've been in this global emergency what we've seen which we've never been able to see before is that all of that buying all of that worship of celebrity and and politicians and people in power and people of note and big corporations that and that get the bag culture none of it helped anyone no Everyone suffered. It, like 50 million people in the United States lost their jobs. No one, there's no setup. No one cares. None of it means anything. That diamond grill or that Gucci bag or this, that and the other. None of it is going to save your life or put a roof over your head or fill your belly mm. and or make you happy or, or save the people that you love or keep people alive. I think we've all realized that we were worshipping a really morally bankrupt system and I think that that's going to change. I think people really see that celebrities are fucking useless and so are many of the people in power and corporations are dirty and they treat their uh, employees terribly and there's so much racism and all kinds of disastrous behaviour. We are seeing the world for what it is and I think that this has been the year where we're like, oh, essential workers are the heroes, not the supermodels eating like pasta on a thousand a night hotel suite covered in diamonds. The superheroes are the immigrants who came to this country and became healthcare workers. I've never seen Time magazine, Vogue, be covered by people who are the true heroes of our society, the everyday people who save other people for a living. And so I think that's been the best and coolest thing about this year is our whole value system shifting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can agree with more with all of that. <laughs> I can't add anything to it. I'd, just moving on, I'd love to talk to you about Iway. For our listeners mm -hmm. not familiar with 
what it is. It's a remarkable phenomenon. Could you talk a little bit about what inspired the initial idea? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been an, a kind of a social justice warrior, I guess, since I was about 19 years old. Uh, you and I have worked together on yeah. um, causes in the past. Uh, but I weigh was the kind of amalgamation of all of those years of work was was accidentally stumbling on a way to say everything I've ever wanted to say publicly um basically I was on a big show in America called The Good Place and that gave me a much bigger platform than anything I've ever had globally and one day I was on Twitter or no I think I was on Instagram I was seeing all these pictures of women come up and the numbers were written across their bodies and I was like oh I wonder if that's their net worth and um being the uh capitalist um nightmare that I was at the time <laughs> and maybe still am <laughs> I'm still working my way out of, and through that but yeah. I clicked on it just curious and it was their weight and I was like oh that's very strange and then because of the algorithms of Instagram um, all of a sudden loads of these pictures started coming at me and I just kept on seeing like Selena Gomez, Taylor Swift like these famous businesswomen and entrepreneurs and award winners the only numbers written across their bodies were always their weight. And I couldn't find a picture that was similar of any of their male counterparts. So I was just like, oh, fuck, in 2018, we're still only measuring a woman's worth via how little space she takes up. So in a moment of just kind of snapping, I just wrote what I weigh, which is my financial independence, my mental health struggles I've overcome or I'm working through currently, my relationship, my friendships, my, you know, my activism, etc., I, I weigh the sum of my motherfucking parts. And I just posted it on Twitter. I didn't have a very big Twitter following or Instagram following at the time. And it just went completely viral. It went all around the world. And within three days, I had 10,000 women send me what they weigh back to me in the same measures of contributions to society and like emotional attributes. And I started an Instagram account, again, not thinking much of this because it was such a kind of happy accident. And Yet two years later, we have 1.3 million followers on Instagram. It's a full movement. We are changing two bills in the United States at the moment. We have changed a global policy on Instagram and Facebook. We are working on other massive networks, changing their global policies to protect minors and their mental health. And we are a full content company. We have a podcast, a YouTube channel. I'm now able to give young activists their own shows where I'm no longer involved. I'm just a producer. And we have built into a fully fledged movement that isn't just about eating disorders or weight or body image. It's about mental health, disability, trans issues, LGBTQ, ageism, etc. We're an entire umbrella company for all methods of shame and marginalisation. We want to, I mean, look, this year, I think everyone's realised how little they know about other groups and yes. other experiences beyond their own, right? Mm. And I think everyone wants to participate in activism and they don't know where to start. And you get very shamed for not already having all of the answers if you admit to that publicly. Mm. So I'm, you know, the queen of getting shamed if I ever make a single mistake. And that doesn't make me want to hide away and pretend I know everything. I think that's very toxic and dangerous. It's made me want to learn publicly. And so I created iWay now to be this platform where wherever you are at in your knowledge of social justice, you can come and join us. We won't make you feel bad for not knowing everything. We're just excited that you want to learn. And we will introduce you to the great activists and thinkers and writers that can educate you. And we're all learning together. And it's a very shame-free space of just encouraging people. You know, this kind of, this way of smashing people up if they don't know all of the answers about everything, I think just devalues progress. Mm. And it just, it doesn't, reward the effort of trying and I think we need to do that if we're going to encourage especially young people to actually care about other groups 
I've seen you guys, you, or, or particularly you, use the term radical inclusivity. And I love yeah. that because I think so much of the time, you know, as someone who I work in fields of, you know, working activism in terms of improving access to live music for disabled people, etc. Yeah. And I think so much of the time inclusivity is tokenistic. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think what you're doing is you're blowing it right open you're opening it right up and actually it's not adhering to this idea that we need to be seen to be inclusive of, of all different minority groups and you know diverse groups of people it's about saying this is who we are we are we yeah. are i also think someone in your position i think it it takes a lot to stand up and raise your head up above the parapet so earlier on in your career, was, was there ever any point where anyone took you aside and gave you any kind of cautionary tales and said this, you know, as, as someone in the public eye, people don't like you speaking out about things? Did that ever, yeah. was that ever something Always. you came across? It's all I've ever heard from people around me is stop doing it. You know, you don't want to be seen as a bit much. You don't want to be seen as difficult. You don't want to be seen as complaining about your industry. Um, I've always been um, told to shut the fuck up, but it feels very irresponsible to be in the belly of the beast, like the belly of erasure and setting social and societal standards for what is beautiful, what is acceptable, what is cool, what is heroic. It feels so crazy to participate in this and not tell people the truth and turn the lights on because then it makes me complicit in this culture, which makes me feel filthy. I love participating in this industry because I'm able to reach so many people, but I can't just, I, I don't, wouldn't be able to sleep at night knowing all of the lies that, permeate our culture from here I wouldn't be able to just shut up so I've been using my platform since I had it to try and raise awareness Uh, it was really frustrating I remember being told that when I started speaking out so much about disability and the lack of access like eight years ago I was told that that wasn't a sexy thing to talk about and Mm -hmm. that me talking about my car accident that broke my back when I was 17 wasn't sexy and that my being deaf as a child wasn't sexy and like these things weren't cool and Mm -hmm. I was so offended. It never stopped me from trying, but Christ, like I came up against so much difficulty back then because I didn't have a big enough platform. So, you know, me trying to start that company for people with disabilities uh, where they would be able to have amazing access at gigs and everything that I pulled off, like with the company. And, you know, you worked on that a bit with me for a while. That was Why Not People. That was Why Not People, yeah. But I can't believe how much harder that was then than it is becoming for me now. This is a massive problem, Blaine, which is that, you know, because I had a much smaller platform back then, people just don't listen to you. They don't listen to underprivileged people. They didn't listen to me or my fellow activist friends. Mm. They don't listen to the marginalised. We blame them and victimise them sort of sorry, victim shame them for their yeah. own marginalization and yet here I am now a Hollywood actress saying all the same shit I was saying back then and now everyone's taking me seriously it's great that I have this opportunity but it does make me feel very frustrated for like my fellow activists who aren't Hollywood actresses mm. who aren't being listened to but I have to use this while I can is is talking about your disability something you feel comfortable about is it part of your identity do you see it as part of your identity yeah, but not in a bad way. I think it's mm. just shaped, shaped me to like have more perspective and gratitude mm. for the things that do work in my body. Obviously, there are days of resentment when I'm in, you know, I mean, I wake up in pain, I go to bed in pain, I go to bed swollen every single night. There's so much 
that I am limited from doing, but there's also so much that I still can do and my heart still beats and my lungs still work and I feel tremendously grateful for that. And so I wouldn't change a thing. I would love to not be in pain, but I wouldn't really change a thing because it's made me who I am. Speaking out about it is difficult because people gaslight me all the time because I look well on the outside and um, accuse me of having Munchausen's and being a compulsive liar. And that's incredibly hurtful if you've been in and out of hospital your entire life. But other than that, I'm glad I've said something because it's managed to make a lot of young kids feel seen to recognise that even if your doctors tell you that you'll never be able to achieve the same things more able-bodied people can, that I'm at least a glimmer of hope for them that maybe you can achieve some of your dreams. Mm. I mean, because I was going to ask you if you'd come face-to-face with disability-related discrimination in TV or in acting, but I think perhaps, as you said, because it's not necessarily noticeable, mm-hmm. you've you've encountered other actually other forms of discrimination, which is people not believing you and doubting your... Yeah. And I think, I suppose that comes into ableism. There can be this attitude of sometimes not being disabled enough, you know, of, yeah. pe- of people with invisible illnesses not being allowed a voice in the conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? So I, I didn't talk about it for the first six years of my career at all because I was so scared that I would lose a job because it's such an ableist industry. I don't need to tell you that. You know, it's just, it's it's wild how ableist this industry is. And so I never wanted to get fired because someone would think I would need too much of an insurance policy for my health or someone would think I would get hurt um, doing the job. So I used to not declare my illness in yeah. order to be able to still do the work. And I would just sort of manage my way through it with painkillers and, you know, all sorts of techniques and physio and etc. And so because... I didn't come out saying that from the beginning. When I suddenly said it, it just felt like, oh, well, this is very sudden, mm. isn't it? Mm. You look fine and you've done all this work, so you must be fine. You're not physically just lying on the floor the entire time. And if you're not in a wheelchair, then we don't believe you could have any kind of disability. So it's just, it was a decision that I made in order to be able to pursue my career, to hide it. And I guess when I came out, people weren't ready to accept it because it wasn't my initial declaration but I could never have gotten to where I am now there's no way on earth I could ever have gotten to where I am now had I declared how sick I was Mm. and now I have power and now I'm able to choose the jobs that are actually okay for me so I don't do big action movies for example sure Sure. do you think in a way it was you know, you talked about Why Not People, which was the organisation that you set mm-hmm. up to campaign to essentially create an events, a music and events members club for disabled people to yeah. have better access to live music, festivals. Do you think in a way it was the experience of founding Why Not People which led to your continued activism with, with I Way? Yeah, mostly it, I mean, it taught me what not to do. You know, with Why Not People, it was such a disaster of the fact that so many people got involved for the wrong reasons and were so unsupportive and so many people took advantage of it and took advantage of me in that situation. You know, but the, one of the guys who did the website held the, held the web, website hostage for a ransom so that I had all these disabled people who couldn't access the website for ages. And then I had people just, it was a fucking mess and charity work as I'm sure you know and activism can sometimes be a very murky world full of people who do things for very questionable um, intent questionable reasons yeah Yeah. and they're dealing with a lot of vulnerable people and they take advantage of those vulnerable people so I think mostly that taught me what not to do but also 
pulling off that first amazing event um, for Why Not People, where we made history. It was the biggest event ever for people with disabilities. And we had like these backpacks that would um, vibrate the music through someone's chest. So they would be able to, if they had a sensory impairment, they would be able to enjoy the um, the show, even if they couldn't see it or hear it necessarily. It was such a wonderful night. And I think that cemented to me that that fulfilled me more than any of the shit I'd done in show business. And that that's where my heart would lie forever. I just needed to get away from the people I was involved with in that company and try again. And now I'm able to readdress the situation of ableism, lack of access, but from a much bigger platform. And so, and I therefore I have more power and I'm surrounding myself with much better people. But for sure, that was a big moment in my career of activism to realise how much I love it, how dedicated I am to it, but also how tricky people in this business are. Not show business, in the business of like, I don't know, altruism, whatever. Absolutely. I mean, is, is there, would you say there's a difference in attitude in the States compared to the UK towards disability? Is there... Yes. In, in what way? I mean, the access is so much better, Blaine. You wouldn't believe it. They don't have all these... Because it's a much newer country as well. So they don't have all these fucking listed buildings. The idea that a listed building means you can't add a fucking ramp or a disabled toilet or change the the, the 60-step staircase out the front uh, makes me so appalled with England. And I can't believe how much shit I used to come up against in England when it came to access because... And I also wonder if maybe it's because America is more litigious. You can sue people so easily here. So therefore, I think companies therefore just don't want to get sued. And so the access is, at least in California, I can't speak for many other places, but California, the access is amazing comparatively. But Britain, you know, one of the things I used to come up against the most, and I'm sure you get the same thing, is that I spent years going up and down the country talking to people who would own venues and establishments, just being like, why won't you just make this place more accessible? And they would tell me, well, we don't have the enough disabled clientele to justify the reparation costs. And it's like, well, if they can't get in the fucking building, how are you supposed to... So how are you supposed to have the clientele if you're locking them out? So I would say that America is maybe out of fear or maybe out of progressiveness further, way further along when it comes to disability and way less shaming around disability. And they don't tend to feel the need, in my experience, to hide people with disabilities away. They celebrate their stoicism and bravery Mm. more here. It doesn't feel like an embarrassment. It feels like something that you are going through that people really admire you for just being able to pursue your dreams through. And I've been able to come out and talk about my health problems here and it has not lost me a single job, whereas in the UK I was always terrified it would. Because people are so afraid to talk about anything in the UK. What do you think it is about our British culture that, that that makes us like that? I don't know. I think we're just sort of doused in shame. I don't, I'd like, you know, I've always had theories in the past that that comes from the fact that we tried to, you know, Britain tried to colonise so many other uh, continents and countries around the world and failed uh, spectacularly and have been sent packing back to the tiny little isle that we now exist in. And the Great Britain is actually very small now compared to what, you know, it wanted to be around the world. And I wonder if that has kind of created this inbuilt shame and humility in the British. And I think that might just kind of live on till now. But we're so obsessed with a stiff upper lip and and not having difficult conversations. And therefore, we are a depressed and heavily drinking and troubled nation full of amazing people who could 
access so much more happiness if we would just allow them to, if we would allow people to be more honest about the way they feel, if we would allow people to share their woes and their worries, and if we wouldn't hide from talking about sex and disability and sexuality and gender, etc. We're so scared of having difficult conversations. Mm. I don't know why, but it's because of that fear, it means that our racism, our, our xenophobia, etc., it's just much more insidious, but then it bubbles under the surface. What's happening in America is heinous, but at least it's out there now. At least we can see it all for what it is and we know what work needs to be done. In Britain, I think we're still lost in our kind of kind of cloud of politeness. Yes, absolutely. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. I'm not shitting sense. on Britain, I'm despairing of it because I love Britain. Mm. In a way, the, the humility is more visible in the States. I mean, the hostility is more visible, but so is the humility, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that this... Unfortunately, you kind of have to... What's that tagline for Homeland? It's like the only way out is back in. Right. <laughs> I kind of feel like that yeah. that resonates at this moment in America where we just like realise what a fucking clusterfuck this is. But yeah. Britain is not really much less of a clusterfuck. We just don't... It's just all buried under the surface mm. there and it's going to come out eventually. And I think while this has been a horrifying year in America, I do think it's going to be quite healing because people have really... Everything is very exposed yeah. And just wait, there's, there are no obstacles hiding us from the terrifying division and like sort of partisan way of life over here. Yeah. I mean, talking about America, so you, you live in LA now. I mean, yeah. I, I love Los Angeles, you know, the climate, the, I mean, so many musicians have moved there and I totally get it. It, it feels like it's got something that New York had, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely a place associated with culture which divides a lot of people you know historically it's been somewhere people go to become something to make it to find fame fortune and it's definitely a place which conjures images of perfect bodies botox you know abs mirror selfies you know but ironically i think that sort of desperate search for perfection is so widespread now that it's sort of universal isn't it and and you know instagram democratized this bullshit didn't it Absolutely. And, it, and you know... And Facebook and everything. Exactly. Go and on. it's the filters and it's Facetune and it's apps that can make our lives look like that for free. It's not just for celebrities anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think as a place, LA specifically, is somewhere that's changed because of that? No, I mean, LA is exactly the same. I think everything else is just caught up with LA. And also the whole of Los Angeles isn't like this. It's just the industry part of it, which is... I guess, probably just this little subsection of Los Angeles. A lot of people here, you know, don't really give a fuck about Hollywood and they're just, you know, spiritual and shoving crystals up their asses and all <laughs> kinds of shit. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the industry is as vacuous as ever and everywhere else is just sort of caught up. I think it has, it is the epicentre of this horse shit and it has just kind of trickled out across the entire world. But therefore, what better a place for me to come in and try and start cleaning up from the inside yeah change yeah like i i've tried screaming from the outside that's exactly what happened with why not people i was too i I didn't have and it's not to say that work is redundant if you don't have a huge platform i think work in numbers is really wonderful and important and vital and i couldn't do this without all the people working with me but i definitely have found it of course easier from inside the machine Mm. because you can just like i've been able to just kind of poison the well yes 
and expose the lies, expose the hypocrisies, expose some of the individuals who participate in the really problematic culture and and just call it as it is. Because I think a lot of people, much like myself when I was younger, I just didn't know how much of this was bullshit. And it really damaged me. And I really thought that there was something much more wrong with me than there was because I didn't look like this made-up archetype that Hollywood and fashion perpetuates. I'm interested to know, how do you deal with the trolls how do you deal with the adversaries you know you are someone that you know you say what you think you stick your head above the parapet and you know many many people myself included admire you hugely for doing so but there's going to be people out there and I know you've talked about this that have a problem with that I mean how do you how do you deal with that well I mean first of all you have to think about the kind of person who's going to go online if you know and actually I can say this from experience I used to be an internet troll Lane. <laughs> So what sort of area are we talking about? Is this, is I'm not I'm talking about when I was on T4. Like I was right. a fucking troll. Right. And so I I A, I think it's karma sure. for me being such a little bitch yeah. <laughs> on the internet <laughs> ten years ago. But I also think that uh, I remember my headspace. I you know, I was super slut shamey and when I was super slut shamey it was the year after I was raped. So mm. I was externalizing my trauma online who goes online to say vicious pointless unhelpful shit on the internet who does that other than a deeply troubled uh, person who doesn't know how to deal with their own feelings mm. and so when I was just ex- just spewing such negativity and like venom online and because I thought I was being funny and I was doing it to get snarky likes and we also used to really celebrate the people who didn't give a fuck um, which is no longer the case thank god uh, I was doing it because I was in pain. And so I think remembering what I was like as a little bitchy little internet troll makes me empathise a lot with those who do it now where I'm like, oh, I know where you're at. Like, I know how you think this is going to make you feel better, but ultimately it won't. And so I'm dealing with someone who isn't mentally stable right now and therefore I shouldn't take this too personally. Obviously, a pylon is very stressful, especially when you're being gaslit and lied about. Yeah. There is no way to advise someone as to how to get through that other than, God, I hope you have therapy or a good (laughs) boyfriend or a dog uh, because it's very, very troubling. I've always been happy to be held to account for the things that I've done wrong, but I never had any preparation to have to account for things that I hadn't actually done. And that was really tricky. Mm. But other than that, when it comes to trolls, just remember sad people are the people who actually spend their days doing that because they don't have something better to do. Mm. I was a sad troll who didn't have love in my life or a supportive family or great friendships at the time. And so that's how my pain came out. And I think when you start to humanise trolls and look at them like that, it stops hurting so much and you actually just feel very sorry for them. And I know that sounds condescending, but I am speaking from the experience of having been one of those sad little fucks. I feel like it's fair for me to say in yeah, that case. Absolutely. I'm not trying to be a dick. No, absolutely. Talking about the, you know, trolls, the toxic culture of social media, mm-hmm. having a platform. I think something I, you know, that I admire about you is how incredibly honest you are with the barriers you've encountered in regards to your own personal journey and your mental health. I know I've heard you talk about experiencing kind of breakdown, but rather than call it that, you called it a breakthrough. I think there's something very simple but powerful about the difference in the terminology there. A breakthrough implies that a crisis can actually be part of inner growth rather than life collapsing in on itself. 
Yeah, I think I did both. Now, now that I look back, I think it was a breakdown and then a breakthrough. I do think I have to acknowledge the breakdown because, Blaine, I didn't brush my teeth for like six months. It was really bad. So I, think, so I think I did both. And I think it's just very important to know that the through is what comes next. Yeah, We always hear only about the first bit. It's okay to acknowledge that you completely fell apart. But, you know, there's this... Um, Japanese art form I can't remember what it's called I think it might be Kintsukuri but I might be completely wrong where they take broken china and they put it back together using gold yes. to mold it back together and and therefore it is much stronger yes. for the breakdown and then gluing back together yeah and I've always found that to be a wonderful analogy for how I felt as a human post my breakdown is that I put myself back together and I'm infinitely stronger than I was before to the point where this year where I've had mental health struggles, they are so much easier to deal with because my base is put together with gold. Mm. I love that. And they, there's also the one about forest forest bathing. Do you know about that? No. It's kind of a national, it's sort of a national pastime or a national sport. They go down to the forest and they just sit amongst the trees and it's called forest bathing again i don't know what the term is in japanese but it feels like one of those things that we need especially now we need to do some forest bathing you know yes yeah actually my um my best friend has just trained in that and she's coming over to america soon so she's going to take me forest bathing i'm going to go tree hugging blame <laughs> i'm going full la <laughs> amazing amazing Hi Podballs, sorry to rudely barge in again. This is the part of the episode which we like to use to signal boost other artists, podcasters or advocates who are doing great things. This week, I want to tell you about a podcast called Sound of Silence. Sound of Silence is the brainchild of Steve XO, an artist, writer and a speaker with a deep interest in creativity and the human condition. Steve describes the podcast as a downloadable pause, quite simply an experiment that records the silence that arises between two people. I love Sound of Silence and often find myself putting on an episode when I need a little moment of stillness away from the grind of London life. The series is limited to 100 episodes and each one is only around three minutes long, featuring special guests from David Shrigley to Leela Moss to Eddie Izzard, even to yours truly. Here's Steve sitting down with comedian Jim Moyer, a.k.a. Vic Reeves. The, the M25 motorway directly in front of me. Other than that, there's nothing. That was Vic Reeves enjoying a little nature bath somewhere outside the M25 with artist Steve XO. Accompanied by two magpies, a lorry and some leaves. Links down in the show notes for how to listen to Sound of Silence podcast and to find out about Steve's other art projects. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Jamila. Again, talking about mental health there's a phrase that I love which is that your mistakes the best part of your resume and the novelist James Joyce said a very similar things that that mistakes are the portals of discovery and and yet something I think I find very jarring in this age of social media and the way the culture manifests itself in the digital age is that there's this impulse to create a completely 
idealized version of one's existence, mm -hmm. of only showing our successes and our so-called best life to the world, resulting in, you know, in essentially this very curated representation of ourselves, which is, of course, yeah. you know, not the truth at all. I mean, I, I'm interested in knowing, because this, you know, especially this, this episode of the podcast is about this link, mental health, social media, as someone so visibly in the public eye, and, you know, especially someone like you that's so wonderfully open how how mindful do you find you have to be of how you present your life to the outside world I'm just not very mindful I could have actually stood to be a bit more mindful because I you know sometimes have spoken in a moment of chaos where I haven't really thought about what I'm saying and I haven't really my profile grew so fast that I just I'd been so used to just screaming into the void that suddenly having five million people listen every time I speak and then it making international news I truly there was a moment last year where I could fart and it would make world news it was just any tweet any single thing I said I would breathe and it would just be suddenly reported some big controversial story um and so I'm not very filtered in social media because I think that we are in such a toxic age of kind of perfection addiction and it's just not realistic it's not human it's not humane and it's not good for kids to see and when I grew up I never I mean not only did I not know that the aesthetics that I see were seeing were photoshopped and fake, but I also didn't know that the personas I was seeing were photoshopped and fake. Kids need to know that it's okay to fuck up, it's okay to put your hands up and say, I don't know the answer, or I've made a mistake and I want to be better. Kids need to know that it's okay to struggle with your mental health and that the version of you that is smiling on a red carpet doesn't necessarily represent the person that you are inside because people feel like they're failing if they don't live up to the nonsense narrative that people like me, people in the public eye, put out into the world and it's vital that they understand that they are not flawed I mean it's the whole point of my podcast you know where I either interview experts or huge international celebrities uh, where I talk to them about their most humane and like embarrassing or difficult or shameful struggles because we need we desperately need to humanize ourselves and each other to one another because it's not just about adults seeing this it's about kids and what kids are internalizing around perfection and it's why the suicide rates I think are the highest they've ever been yes. because people just feel like such failures they feel beyond hope beyond repair um and they feel as though the bar is set so high they can't even see it anymore so they just give up before they've even had a chance to grow into the people they're going to become. And so that's why I tend to be, you know, recklessly sometimes unfiltered, just because I would rather get it wrong and be punished very, very publicly than run the risk of having anyone try to live up to something that I myself cannot live up to. Mm. And I, I mean, I suppose one of those things is the way that you've taken on airbrushing and skin whitening on magazines. Yeah. Did you feel you had the support of people in standing up in that way? No, not for years. Like I've been trying to ask for that for fucking eight years. It wasn't really until I became a powerful actor as in not that I'm powerful at acting but I became powerful because I'm an actor sure. uh, that people had no choice but to listen to me because I wouldn't shoot with people unless they promised me in writing that they wouldn't edit my photographs at all so it definitely hasn't been easy to get here but now that I'm here people are very receptive to it and actually I think they love it because it's much cheaper not having to photoshop <laughs> yeah. someone they don't have to spend ages editing me and it's made me feel much happier and freer as a person because I don't have to live up to these billboards that look nothing like me 
It's so humiliating when all these perfect photographs of you exist out in the world on social media or magazines or billboards and, you know, people bump into you in real life and recognise that like, oh, you've got stretch marks all over your tits and you're like a bit lumpy here and there and your skin isn't actually completely flawless and you aren't ageless and you do have white hairs. It's like, that's such an exhausting image to live up to and I was just fucking tired of it. So, you know, when I became quote unquote famous for the second time this mm. time in America I was like I'm never doing this shit again I'm never going to try and live up to that that's the problem with Facetune when whether you're an actress or not whether you're just a person who works in a school when you use a digitalized a digitally enhanced image of yourself and you put that out there into the world you cannot help but compare your image in the mirror to that photograph that's an impossible fight you will never win that fight you can never compare to this digitally enhanced image of yourself and so the next road is, of course, then just loads of makeup or loads of very painful, potentially quite dangerous cosmetic surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then just dysmorphia, dysmorphia, dysmorphia. Yes. And so I think we set ourselves up for failure with these apps that maybe make us feel good for a second when we're receiving likes. But then there's the immediate come down of like, oh, but that's not actually me. And now I have to reconcile with the image I see in front of the mirror, which I would have been fine with had I not compared it to this bullshit avatar. Yeah. I suppose talking of body dysmorphia, women facing body shaming and adhering to these ideals set by magazines and advertising is nothing new. But I know I read a very shocking statistic that rates of eating disorders in boys in the UK have doubled in the past 10 years. Yeah. And I think that tells us a lot about our social media use. Do you think there's enough high-profile men using their platform to influence and dismantle these societal definitions of self-worth for young men? No, I really think Matt McGorry is truly one of the only people I've heard using his big platform to talk about this. He struggled a lot with his weight over the last couple of years and has just finally come out and just been so open about it. He's actually on my podcast and told me all kinds of truths that I didn't, I've never heard coming from a man before. Sam Smith, they've also been wonderful at opening up about these things. But yeah. no, we haven't seen enough masculine representation of this conversation because I think men in particular feel extra shame around struggling with their body image because it's considered vain and that is something that we, we only ascribe to women. And so, you know, that in itself is so toxic that a man can't say I'm struggling. I mean, that kids are being hospitalized left right and center because of trying you know this attempt to try and get the big kind of six pack the instagram yeah. bod and i'm currently working on a bill to try and change the law that under 18s can no longer access these products because a lot of them have viagra in them right so they are contributing massively to teenage impotence sure. and uh, hormonal imbalances and also very, very heavy metals. So things like mercury, for example, uh, exist in these products. Now, these kids don't know about this. They don't know the long-term effects. And they're just taking these products that are being peddled to them by men on social media who have these like ridiculous photoshopped, unattainable unless you do nine hours of, you know, whatever, working out a day. They are doing the same thing that women influencers are doing. So... I'd say it's a very toxic time for men in social media. Mm. I mean, it's funny because, you know, I think you and I are a similar age. We grew up in the 90s, obviously yeah. a great time for guitar music, clothes, mm -hmm. counterculture, dance music. Not a great time for progressive gender role models. You know, for boys, you had this sort of 
very macho FHM loaded magazine brand of masculinity, you know, lad culture. And then for girls, there was the sort of ladder equivalent of girl power, but it was also the age of the fad diet, size zero models, airbrushing. Paparazzi um, culture. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think a young person growing up today has access to more body positive gender roles than perhaps we did growing up? Definitely. Of course. I mean, Lizzo and Ashley Graham and like Adi Adepitan, like there's so many different people from different walks of life who I think represent different shapes and sizes and, and uh, you know, we celebrate so many different types of people and more so than before. But I do also think it's tricky. I think things are better for representation than they've ever been. But I also think that at least when we were kids, we had to go out and buy toxicity you know we had to go out and buy the magazines that mm. make us feel like shit about ourselves and they'd cost like four quid so it'd be really hard to buy them yeah um and now it just finds you for free on your phone and so any child who has access to social media is just being pummeled with the shit whether they're looking for it or not just based on their age and gender and so i think that that's a really tricky balance that we have to work out and i think the only way through it is just to educate the kids this idea that ignorance and innocence have to be mutually exclusive is so fucking backwards and dumb um and needs to massively shift if we just arm kids with the understanding that what you're seeing isn't real the porn you're seeing isn't real sex the bodies you're seeing are photoshopped or these people have chefs and personal trainers and aren't really taking these laxatives the way they to look the way that they do if we start to understand that all of this is a facade if we just educate them then they kids smart they will have the autonomy And they'll be armed with the information that will help them not try and steer their entire lives towards this false ideal. Mm. I suppose what's especially scary about it now is the, you know, surveillance capitalism element of it, whereby Mm. these products that that are being sold to us, as you said, once upon a time, you had to go out to the shop, you had to buy that toxicity. Now it comes to us and it's sculpted around us, you know, our experiences it knows every health issue that we've looked up on Google. It knows every financial transaction. It knows every fantasy, every fear that we might research. You know, and we now know that the likes of Google and Facebook are employing psychoanalysts and, and data analysts to directly essentially manipulate our emotions and our purchase decisions. I mean, how do you... I completely agree that you said in terms of educating younger people, we need to... Um, I mean, I don't know why I'm saying we. Uh, I, I suppose we're sort of in that bit between, you know, generation Y. We're like, we're not. I don't. I don't know. I still don't see myself as like the adult or the, or the younger person <laughs> because we're sort of trapped between those two eras. Yeah. You know, we we sort of know we know how to use social media as a tool, but we also, you know, have a recollection of time before it. But you know, how do you think we escape this? Because th- I think there is so much fear associated with this. The, you know, essentially that we're being spied on and we are being making decisions. We're not as autonomous as we think we are. I mean, when it comes to me, I'm personally fine with being spied on. I just can't be bothered to be afraid uh, of that. I haven't murdered anyone. I don't have any big skeletons in my closet. So, like, that sort of stuff doesn't terrify me. I understand why it should. 
and what it does and why spyware, etc. and all these different ways of monitoring people are horrendous in the way that our data is being sold. But I, on a personal level, just can't be bothered to care. There's just too much going on in the world. I do think that we all just need to get off our fucking phones for our sense of sanity, for our ability to access empathy. When you look into the blue light of an iPhone, the chemicals that help you engage with empathy are no longer being produced Wow. or released in your brain. So you're you're truly unable to access empathy, which is how we're able to watch like disaster after explosion, after pandemic, after death, after murder, after rape, etc. And just keep scrolling and then mm. move on and then double double tap a picture of an avocado toast. So we are devoid of empathy because we are staring at the world and human beings through this lens that is denying us our most fundamental humane capacity. Of empathy, so, yeah. Yeah, and so... I mean, I, I had a really I, wonderful conversation... that we need to get off. Go Sorry. on. So, no, I, I had a really wonderful conversation with Ed O'Brien from Radiohead a couple of episodes back, and he said perhaps what needs to happen is the internet just needs... It just needs to go down for a bit. It just needs to die for a year. And, mm. I mean, it sounds quite extreme, but I think it would definitely illustrate just how many aspects of our lives are so dependent on it, wouldn't it? I think it would be incredible if the internet died because I think we would be able to just have that moment, that discomfort of not knowing what to do with ourselves because we're so obsessed. I think our thumbs would be so grateful because we would finally give them a little break. My, I, I swear I have repetitive strain injury yeah. in my thumbs from texting and scrolling and tapping. Yeah. Um, I think that we would then, after that uncomfortable moment, find a way to entertain ourselves that involved nature and the outside and actual face-to-face communication. What I think is going to be amazing, and I could be completely wrong about this, but I predict that post-pandemic, when lockdown is fully over, we're going to get the fuck off our phones and off our computers and get back to each other. Mm. I really think that that's going to be uh, the result of this pandemic because I think that a lot of people have obviously become so addicted. But I've realised that my screen time is something like 13 hours a day yeah. on certain days during this during lockdown. And now I'm repulsed by my phone. <laughs> I just don't want to see it anymore in what you do what i do we have the excuse of it sort of being our office but still as you said there is just this exposure to the blue light yeah and it's i'm suffering my mental health is suffering from it i feel chaotic and angry and lost and scared all the time because it's all you're seeing social media is now just people screaming at each other it's not there's no it's not even like tits and bums and dancing anymore like it used to be you know and that's that's anyone's bums of any gender but it used to be like much more kind of i think sex doesn't sell anymore outrage sells outrage is the new sex and so everything is just outrage porn everywhere everywhere you look everyone's outraged everyone's screaming and it's really bad for your mind to take that in for any longer than about 30 minutes a day Mm. so i'm fully changing my tactic i actually left twitter yesterday i was like i'm just taking a couple of months off because I was like, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just too much screaming. It's distracting me from my work and distracting me from my own humanity. I just need to get off uh, for a couple of months to give myself a break. So I'm already in the mode of detoxifying myself, giving myself 15 minutes a day on Instagram. And I really recommend that for everyone because we need to get back to our creativity and our humanity and back to each other. And I think having been starved of each other for so long is going to encourage us, hopefully, to reclaim the good old days of meeting people face to face i don't think anyone wants to date online anymore everyone is sick of it mm. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I sw- well, so much wanking over FaceTime yeah. this year. My God, <laughs> FaceTime. I mean, if that talk about spyware, can you imagine? Can you imagine whoever is spying on people's FaceTime? Can you imagine what they've seen? Yeah. Oh, that cloud. That cloud seems a lot. Just oh my god! It's just a cum fest. It's yeah. horrifying. <laughs> just yeah. everyone sitting there frantically wanking. Over yeah. FaceTime. <laughs> god. <laughs> I think people are just going to want to shag in person like the good old days. Like the good old days, like the good old days. <laughs> remember um, meeting someone in a bar? Yeah. Oh, remember that? Yeah. I, I mean, I've, so I've got a girlfriend. I, I, was, I was never very good at the, at the dating thing. I, Same. It's just so awkward. No, I know. I've always met people who either are already in my house, um, not like intruders, uh, people who are guests <laughs> of my flat. I've always lived with flatmates or I met James at work at Radio 1. Yeah. And so I'm a very lazy, uh, shy person. Well, listen, Jamila, it's been so fun talking to you. I've just got one last question to ask you, if I may. Sure. Um, it's a question that we like to ask each of our guests, and that is, what are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for? The three things I think are worth fighting for are trans rights, disabled rights, and feminism those are the three things they're three they're, they're big ones are worth they're fighting ones. for yeah i really do and cake <laughs> we all need more cake in this world Amazing. um but no one's taking that away from us right now but those are the three things i mean there's so many but just generally social justice right now there's nothing there's nothing more important than social justice because we are so divided and conquered right now and it's just causing pain for everyone and we would be infinitely happier in an equal world and i think some people look at what's that expression that uh equality to the privileged feels like oppression mm. and i think we have to shift from that mindset because things are so unequal now and is anyone happy does anyone feel good does anyone feel safe no even the privileged just feel this sense of detachment from each other and from everyone else it's horrifying mm. we are such a divided world and i think that we really need to work together within social justice to make sure there is more equality because there would be so much more connections so much creativity so much more art so many more interesting stories to hear and to tell i think that um i think the world is is going through an immense change and i think we are coming out of this poorer but better as better people i hope allyship yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Well, you're doing that, you know, you're telling those stories, you're using your voice, you're using your platform to um, to amplify and raise those, you know, bring attention to those voices. So you're, you're doing that. And uh, I think it's amazing. Thank so, you. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of yours and I really appreciate not only what you do with the platform that you have, but also just what you represent to so many people and so many kids out in the world and the way that you just smashed through so many glass ceilings and broke the rules and just did it so seamlessly. And I have just always massively admired you for that. And I think that you've always been a kind of reminder to me that any that, that our dreams are still possible, regardless of whether or not someone else thinks they might be. And so massive kudos to you. Well, respect, all the respect back to you. Um, lovely to catch up yeah and you too well I hope to see you on one side of the Atlantic at some point or other when we're through this craziness (laughs) yeah I'll see you in 2030 when we both have long beards 
Sounds amazing. Great. Look forward to it. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening and getting all the way to the end of this bumper episode of Things Worth Fighting For. And also both to Jamila Jamil and Jamie Windus for giving their time so generously. Take a look in the show notes for links related to both conversations, including how to follow iWay and stories from its amazing and rich community of voices. And also links for Jamie's social media, when you can stay updated with their passport campaign and pre-order links for their book In Their Shoes, due for release in October this year. We'll be back shortly with another episode, so stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe and give us a beautiful little rating if you enjoyed the show. It really helps new listeners to find us and allows these conversations to grow in new and wonderful ways. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. Cheers, Matt. Also, thanks to Isabel Offler, as well as Kate Jones and Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all their amazing help and coordination skills. And now... I'm going to pour myself a little glass of rosé and to play you out, we're going to listen to Petty Drone from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. Stay safe and see you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.